Hello and welcome to Facing Grace. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. Today's topic of discussion is immigration, assimilation, and identity. Stay tuned. Immigration has always been something that has been talked about, particularly in the U.S. And in fact, immigration is something that's very American. Of course, with any influx of outsiders, there's always been a sense of them versus us. But what some Americans don't understand is that America is literally a nation of immigrants. And we would be nothing, we wouldn't be the country we are today if we didn't have them. So let's go back in time for a minute. Some of America's first settlers came in search of freedom to practice their faith. And in 1820, a group of about 100 people, later known as pilgrims, fled religious persecution in Europe, and they arrived at present-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, where they established a colony. And they were soon followed by a larger group seeking religious freedom, the Puritans, who established the Massachusetts Bay Colony. By some estimates, 20,000 or so Puritans migrated to the area between 1630 and 1640. A larger share of immigrants came to America seeking economic opportunities. However, because of the price of passage, which was really expensive back there, it was about an estimated one half or more of white Europeans who made the voyage did so by becoming indentured servants. And although some people voluntarily indentured themselves, others were kidnapped in European cities and actually forced into servitude in America. And additionally, thousands of English convicts were shipped across the Atlantic as indentured servants. Obvious, of course, is another group of immigrants who arrived against their will during the colonial period where enslaved people from West Africa. We know that the slave trade was a huge part of our immigration history. The earliest record of slavery in America includes about 20 Africans who were forced into indentured servitude in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. By 1680, there were about 7,000 Africans in the American colonies, and that number actually ballooned to 700,000 by about 1790, and that's just according to some estimates. Congress outlawed the importation of enslaved people to the U.S. as of 1808, but obviously the practice still continued. And again, we don't really know the exact numbers, but it's believed that about 500,000 to 650,000 Africans were brought to America and sold into slavery between the 17th and 19th century. Another major wave of immigration occurred from about 1815 to 1865. The majority of these newcomers hailed from Northern and Western Europe, and approximately a third of them came from Ireland, which, as many people know, experienced a massive famine in the mid-19th century. In the 1840s, about half of Americans America's immigrants were from Ireland alone, and typically impoverished, a lot of these immigrants settled near their point of arrival in the United States, which would have been along the East Coast. So between 1820 and 1930, about four and a half million Irish migrated to the United States. 
Also around that same time frame, the United States received about 5 million German immigrants. And many of them journeyed to present-day Midwest to buy farms or they congregated in cities like Milwaukee and St. Louis and Cincinnati. And in the national census of 2000, more Germans, actually more Americans claimed German ancestry than any other group. So during the mid-1800s, a significant number of Asian immigrants also settled in the United States. And I talked a little bit about this in a previous episode. Many of these immigrants were lured by the news of the California Gold Rush. So about 25,000 Chinese actually migrated there by the early 1850s. This influx of newcomers resulted in a lot of anti-immigration sentiment among certain factions of America's native-born, predominantly Anglo-Saxon Protestant population. So a lot of these new arrivals were often seen as unwanted competition for a job, which isn't really that much different than some of the complaints that we have now in the 21st century of all oh, these immigrants are coming and stealing our jobs. And while many Catholics, particularly Irish, experienced a lot of discrimination for for their their religious beliefs, obviously they still continued to come and they still were intent on on starting a new life and providing for their families. In the 1850s, there was a very anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic American party. It was called the Know Nothings, and they really tried to severely curb immigration. And they actually even ran a candidate, uh, former U.S. President Millard Fillmore, who was the 13th president of the U.S. They ran him in the presidential election of 1856. Of course, he didn't win, but that was definitely the sentiment at that time was very much anti-immigration and especially anti-Catholic. One of the first significant pieces of federal legislation aimed at restricting immigration was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which I mentioned as well in the previous, uh, in a previous episode, which essentially banned Chinese laborers from coming to America. A lot of Californians really were in favor of this law because they blamed the Chinese who were, in fact, willing to work for this. They blamed the Chinese on the decline in wages. So for much of the 1800s, the federal government had left immigration policy to individual states. However, by the final decade of the century, the government decided it really needed to step it up in order to handle the ever-increasing influx of newcomers. So in 1890, then-President Benjamin Harrison designated Ellis Island, which if you haven't ever been, it's really great. It's definitely worth going, extremely educational, uh, located in New York. Harbor, right near the Statue of Liberty, as the federal immigration station. More than 12 million immigrants actually entered the U.S. through Ellis Island during its years of operation from 1892 to 1954 when they closed their doors. Between the 1880s and 1920s, it was a time of really rapid industrialization and urbanization, and America received more than 20 million immigrants. Beginning in the 1890s, the majority of arrivals were from Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe. In that decade alone, about 600,000 Italians migrated to America, and by 1920, more than 4 million had entered the U.S. Jews from Eastern Europe fleeing religious persecution also arrived in large numbers as well. About 2 million entered the U.S. between 1880 and 1920. 
We did see immigration plunge a bit during the global depression of the 1930s. And of course, with World War II uh, from 1939 to 1945. Between the decades of 1930 and 1950, America's foreign-born population actually did decrease from 14 million to about 10 million. And that's just according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And then after the war, Congress passed some special legislation enabling refugees from Eastern, uh, from well, really from Europe and from the Soviet Union to enter the United States. And then also following the communist revolution in Cuba in 1959, hundreds of thousands of ref- refugees from that island nation also gained admittance to the United States. In 1965, Congress ended up passing the Immigration and Nationality Act, which did away with quotas based on nationality and allowed Americans to sponsor relatives from their countries of origin. So as a result of this act and subsequent legislation, the nation experienced a shift in immigration patterns. So today, the majority of U.S. immigrants actually come from Asia and Latin America rather than Europe. And of course, as many people might know, the U.S. has more immigrations. It actually has more immigrants than any other country in the world. So today, more than 40 million people living in the U.S. were actually born in another country. So that would be about, that would account for about one-fifth of the world's migrants, interestingly enough. So the population of immigrants is of course, really diverse, because if we look at America as such a diverse country, and it really represents just about every country in the world. So about 77%, just some interesting facts about immigration that I happened to read in the Pew Research Center facts, about 77% of immigrants in the U.S. are documented immigrants, whereas a quarter are unauthorized, undocumented. And in 2017, 45% of immigrants were naturalized U.S. citizens. Mexico is, of course, the top origin country of U.S. immigrants. And in 2018, about 11 million immigrants living in the U.S. were from there. So that accounted for about a quarter of all U.S. immigrants. The next largest group besides Mexicans, it would actually be China. That's about 6%. India, also 6%. The Philippines, 4%. And El Salvador, 3%. So speaking of immigrants and particularly speaking of of Latin America as, as being a region with a lot of immigration, one issue that has become really political with immigration is DACA. So I did want to speak a little bit about DACA. So DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or we just call it DACA, and it's a U.S. immigration policy that allows some individuals with unlawful presence in the U.S. uh, having been brought to the country as children. It allows them to receive a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation and become eligible for a work permit in the U.S. In order to be even eligible for this program, Recipients cannot have any felonies or any serious misdemeanors on their record. So unlike the proposed DREAM Act, DACA actually doesn't even provide a path to citizenship for recipients. The policy, which, as as many people know, was the executive uh, decision by President Obama on June 15, 2012, 
And the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Service began, began accepting applicants for the program in August of that year. Now, we know a few months ago, uh, the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of DACA. And some conservatives were very upset because they felt as if uh, this was allowing a lot of immigrants that shouldn't be in here, that were in the States illegally, that this really was encouraging illegal immigration. And they also felt that a lot of these people, these so-called illegal immigrants were violent criminals that were being allowed to stay in the U.S. But the thing about immigration and all of this is that often people do like to blame issues like crime or violence on on immigrants. And maybe it's because it's easier to just pin problems on people that don't look like us or don't sound like us or some way different. And of course, we all know at this point how Trump infamously said that Mexico wasn't sending their best, they're sending rapists and criminals and all of that. And maybe sometimes that, tr- that is true. Maybe sometimes bad people do come into the country that are not supposed to be here. But research has, has shown that DACA actually increased the wages and employment status of DACA-eligible immigrants, and it's improved mental health outcomes for DACA participants and their children. It's also suggested to have reduced the number of undocumented immigrant households living in poverty. And in fact, there's no evidence to indicate that DACA recipients have higher crime rates than native-born Americans. In fact, most research shows that immigrants have lower crime crime rates than native-born Americans. And again, as I mentioned too, in order to even qualify, you cannot have any felonies or any serious misdemeanors on your record. So most people have rejected the fact that the uh, DACA is in some way increasing violence and DACA has had diverse people are saying too of course that DACA has uh, an effect on the US economy and the labor market and it's taking jobs away from native born Americans but most economists have have rejected that theory and and really have been supportive of of DACA. So I can't talk about immigration without talking about assimilation because I think those two things go hand in hand. And the idea of assimilation is really interesting because what does it really mean these days? What what does it look like in, in regards to immigrants of today? So the word has its roots in Latin. It's simulare, which means to make similar. And immigrants are expected over an undefined period to become like other Americans, a process metamorphically described as a melting pot. But what this means in practice remains a little bit unsettled. After all, Americans have always been a heterogeneous population racially, religiously, regionally. By what criteria is a person able to assimilate? By what criteria is an outsider judged to fit into such a diverse nation like United States? Well, I guess for some, assimilization is based on pragmatic considerations like achieving some fluency in the dominant language or some economic success or education. So this idea that assimilation should be immigrants leaving behind their identity to adopt a new American identity might be a little bit wrong and it might be a little bit antiquated. I don't know, maybe we aren't even so much a melting pot as more 
I would say a salad, right? We, we, maybe this idea of assimilation and that America just melts together isn't accurate. Maybe we keep our identity, but we mix together to make something that's wonderful, to make something that's more unique and individual. But I think it really depends. I mean, if you were to ask the average person on the street what it means to be assimilated, he or or she might say something about immigrants fitting into American society without really creating any type of problems or without really sticking out from others. It might be something along those lines. And in fact, in there's a book called Assimilation American Style. It's by uh, sociologist Peter Salins. When he presents a con- considerably interesting and very like thoughtful, though in my opinion, not always completely correct, version of this common sense view of assimilation. So he argues that an implicit contract has historically defined assimilation in America. He says, and I quote, immigrants would become welcome as full members in the American family if they agreed to abide by three simple concepts. First, they have to accept English as a national language. Second, they are expected to live by what is commonly referred to as a Protestant work ethic, that is to be self-reliant, hardworking, and morally upright. Third, they were, are expected to take pride in their American identity and believe in America's liberal democratic principles. So, though hardly exhaustive, I think these three criteria certainly get at what most Americans maybe would consider essential to successful assimilation. But let's take a look at them a little bit more closely and just sort of see what it all means. So the, the first thing I think, too, is an interesting concept with language. So it's not entirely clear what Salins means when he's talking about immigrants should accept English as a national language. He really doesn't make that 100% clear. because He seems to have in mind that immigrants should learn English, and it's something that a lot of Americans sort of focus on. But, I mean, I think it's also worth pointing out that America doesn't have and actually has never had an official language. So while it is, of course, I agree with that this idea that if you move to a country, it is good and it's obviously very helpful to learn that language, to learn the dominant language. It's also, again, we don't have an official language. So it's not all... And also, I think it's it's an interesting concept, too, with language because even though I, of course, personally find it easier to speak the language of the country that I'm living in, I think it's not always possible for immigrants. And let me say why. And I'll use myself as an example. So I speak Spanish fairly fluently, but it's because I've had time and I've had opportunity to learn. And sure, you could say that, oh, maybe I speak Spanish because I, I happen to be good at it and I've picked it up easier than other languages and whatever. But I think it's also important to say that I've had time to learn. I've had the opportunity to learn. And that's something that maybe an immigrant who's working 12 hours a day doesn't always get. So on top of that, let's say you are working. If you're working and you're focused on having your business or you're focused on doing what you need to do, maybe learning the language is not your top priority. In my example, and uh, looking at myself, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, I've hired private tutors, I've done language exchanges, 
I've been able to spend hours at a time hanging out with my my Spanish friends, speaking 100% in Spanish, going to bars, speaking in Spanish, watching movies in Spanish. But it's because I have that time and I have the opportunity to do that. And I think in some ways, language acquisition is actually a privilege. Because again, if you're a Chinese immigrant who's opening a restaurant, maybe you don't have the time and the money to attend an academy. Or if you're a Pakistani barber or an African owning a shoe store, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to, to enroll in language classes or to spend the evening watching movies in Spanish. So I think that's one thing. But I think language is interesting because I think it also connects with culture and heritage. So I'm thinking about a lot of Latino politicians nowadays and public speakers who grew up speaking only English, right? But have had to learn Spanish in order to maintain their leadership in a growing immigrant community. So another interesting instance too of this, I think, is is the crew of Selena, who was the Tejano singer, who was really a cultural icon in many ways among Mexican-Americans, and she was murdered by a fan in 1995. And the irony of, of Selena is that she was raised in, in Corpus Christi, and she actually spoke English, and her she spoke English with her family, and she had to learn Spanish in order to become a Tejano star. So a lot of times this idea of, of language and assimilation and this sort of, I think there are some people, some immigrants uh, who move to America and they sort of, I don't want to say abandon their language and culture, but in order to fit in or maybe they're feeling pressure to fit in, they sort of say, okay, we're only going to speak English. We're only using English in the household. I only want my children to speak English. I want them to go to school and I want them to have an American experience. So I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. I would say the it's really obvious that assimilation is multidimensional. And this point was made years and years ago, decades ago, by the sociologist Milton Gordon in his classic study, Assimilation in American Life. This being said, I think there's a lot of academic and popular commentators who continue to talk about whether this or that group will assimilate or if assimilation is a single coherent process when in fact it really has several different dimensions. I think it's economic, social, cultural, and political in some ways. And even when these different facets of assimilation are acknowledged, they are typically depicted as parts of a smoothly synchronized process that operates in some type of lockstep fashion. And I think it's not always so easy, and I don't think it's always super clear-cut. All of that being said, I mean, I do, since I am talking about immigration, I think I do also have to talk a little bit about my experience as well. Because I I am an immigrant. I live in Spain. I'm not Spanish. I'm American. So I'm an immigrant. And I was actually thinking about a lot of this the other day. Uh, because there's an area in, in Spain. So Tal and I have been looking at, at buying a place. And there's an area in the south of Madrid uh, that that we've been looking at. And I sent the listing to a friend of mine who's Spanish. And he said, Pfft, Es que hay muchos gitanos y inmigrantes y no no mola mucho. And he said, oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of gypsies and immigrants in that area, and it's it's not cool. 
And I said, yeah, but, you know, soy inmigrante también. Like, I'm an immigrant too. And he's like, no, 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 but, but it is diferente. You know, you're different. But it's like, what, you know, what makes me different? It's like, <laughs> if you're an immigrant from America, you're from the UK, somehow you are considered different. It's like, you're an expat. You know, whatever that means. It's like, oh, I'm an expat. I live here. I, I don't live in my my own country. I'm I'm an expat. But if you're from Morocco or you're from a country in Africa that's, you know, considered poor or something like that, or even in some instances, even though they're, they're native Spanish speakers, if you're from Colombia or Ecuador, you're considered an immigrant. And I guess in some ways, maybe we're viewed as different because we'll, we're legal residents, uh, I should say documented residents, I have a residency card, I, I work for a Spanish school, I pay taxes, I pay social security here. But I think this really, again, this all comes with a certain level of privilege. I mean, I live in an area of Madrid called Lava Pies that's very international, which is great. And there are people from Bangladesh that have phone stores and there's restaurants and there's uh, people from different parts of Africa that have uh, shoe stores and there's Chinese people that open different shops. And, and some of these immigrants are, are documented. I'm sure some of them are not. But the biggest difference I would say is that I probably have more privilege than most because even though my road to getting residency was really frustrating and it was a lot of paperwork and a lot of wine too, uh, I had to fill out form after form and wait at this office and go there. I had all these different things that I had to do. And of course, sometimes you go and they tell you you're missing this and you have to go there. It was a pain, uh, and and finally, I I actually ended up paying a lawyer about three hundred euros to help with my paperwork and and appointments, and and even that took it took over six months to to get everything together. But the thing is that not everybody can afford to do that. Not everyone has that opportunity, whether it's in Spain or even the U.S. When when people say, ah, oh, well, they should just become legal citizens, they should just become legal legal immigrants, it's like not everybody has that opportunity. Not everyone has English as a native language, for example, here in Spain. So I'm very fortunate that I can get hired at different schools and that I work at one of the best international schools in Madrid and I have residency and I have all my paperwork done. So, yeah, I think this idea of people saying, well, why don't you, why don't, why isn't everybody just legal immigrants? I, I don't think it's, it's not because they don't want to. I think it's because sometimes they really can't. They don't have the resources. They don't have the time. They don't have the opportunity that some of us do have. And I think in regards to assimilation, I don't know, it's an, it's an interesting thought because for me, for example, I've been told on one hand that, Wow, I speak the language. I'm really interested in the Spanish culture. Oh, I mean, I assimilate so well. But then in the same breath, I've also been criticized for, for eating dinner at 7 o'clock in the evening. So I don't know. I mean, people have told me, uh, again, on one hand, oh, I'm almost Spanish because I'm fun and I'm social and I fit into the culture. But then at the same same way, if I say something, for example, about racism in Spain, then immediately they say, no, 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 you don't get it. Racism, no, that's an American problem. It's not a Spanish problem here. And if you were Spanish, you would know that. So clearly you're not Spanish. So I don't know. I think 
I think assimilation is is an interesting concept. I think it's multifaceted, and I think, like many things, it's complicated. So since we're talking about the idea of assimilation, I wanted to talk to my friend May. She's a daughter of an immigrant, and she has a lot of really interesting viewpoints and thoughts. So let's see what she has to say. Hey, May, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Perfect. Hear you, yes, perfect. Hey, so thank you so much for coming on to Facing Race. I'm super excited to have you. And I know that you've also listened to uh, the podcast, so I appreciate your your listening. Um, but yeah, I thought maybe today you could tell myself and also my listeners a little bit about you and kind of your, your experiences. Yes, we do. And um, so my mom is from Iran. She immigrated in her 20s. Um, and my mom's a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. And the Baha'i faith is a persecuted minority in Iran. So um, I think she left for her own reasons, but she never went back. Wow. Because um, of, you know, the persecution. Yeah, and, and so I'm not really um, very much in touch with my mom's culture, um, but I, I feel like my experience has been more like uh, with the gap between generations that happens when one immigrates and the other you know, has never known that world that the parents come from. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the experience of assimilating is just really hard. Like, I remember once, I heard this politician on the radio saying, like, oh, immigration is fine, but they need to assimilate. And um, I just remember thinking, you know, you have no idea what you're asking from people. Like, assimilation is really giving up a part of yourself. Absolutely. Like, um, it's being told all the time that everything you're doing is wrong, the way you pronounce words, the way that you do small everyday, you know, courtesies, um, that everything you've been raised to expect is no longer applies and you have to do things in a new way and and you know we would laugh at my mom's accent Mm. um, (laughs) you know like she would say americans were selfish because they didn't have the same kind of courtesy rituals that iranians did and uh it's just a very um difficult thing i think and and i'm i never even really experienced it that much i mean in china we we lived there for just a few years, but I experienced it a little bit. But um, I kind of always knew I'd leave if I wanted to. Sure. And it, when it's only a few years, it was more like a lark, like just a fun experiment. And the novelty of it made it kind of fun. But, I mean, it's it's really hard. It and, is uh, hard. Yeah. It's absolutely. really asking a lot, I think, that, that people have to stop being their former self when they when they move 
Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, for me as someone that's obviously still American, but living over here in Spain, it's like you do kind of juggle those two cultures where it's like you don't want to give up your identity. But obviously, yes, there's pressure. It's like you want to fit in and you want to, you know, sort of be seen as somebody that's trying to be part of of the culture. So I, I definitely, yeah, I can sort of, you know, I understand what you're saying about about your mom do you feel like when you were in China do you feel like that made you sort of I don't know more sympathetic or more understanding of the struggles that your mom went through because like you said we were we were just there for a couple years but just that experience do you feel like that made you think like wow you know my mom really must have gone through a lot yeah um it definitely made it easier for me to understand um I think just the because the experience is sort of trivial and fun at the beginning, but mm-hmm. it does wear on you. Yes, it does. After a long time, because you know what you're talking about is misconnections with other people. If you have a problem with language, or you know, a problem even with social expectations, knowing what to expect from each other. Um, now, I think it's important to mention it was China. It was a different power relationship than an, Amer- an immigrant coming to America, especially from a non western country because we were kind of like celebrities (laughs) that's true (laughs) good point people were eager to talk to us and we even got to be experts at something we were experts at teaching english and we even had a little passport book that said chinese (laughs) chinese expert or what what was it we we had a little card that we were foreign experts foreign experts or something yeah That's a good point. Even if you were a doctor in your home country, you have to take the classes all over again right. in the U.S. Because, you know, it's, they, they think your education was not as good in a different place. Um, so you, you just completely start over. Um, and so, I mean, I think I did feel a lot more affinity for my mom, from um, especially the struggling with language. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big struggle. I mean, you mentioned, too, that you, speaking of language, that you did not grow up speaking Farsi. And I remember when we were at UMaine, I remember you were taking classes. But you said that you never really were able to have a conversation with your mom. Do you think that's something that you would have liked to have done? Like, if you had been in more of a community where there were more uh, Persians, do you think that that would have been a lot easier? what it would have been like if there had been more of a community. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it's, it's always mixed because on the one hand, it's positive to have this other side of you that you get to explore or to understand things kind of implicitly mm-hmm. rather than having your parents like tell you everything about their experience in the home country. Um, at the same time, you know, sometimes, um, you know, it might be hard if you have these dual sets of expectations from two communities about how you should be. I've definitely heard that experience from other people before. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest uh, thing I missed is I never really got to talk to my grandparents because they didn't know very much English. They also lived really far away. So we would just have a few conversations on the phone, or there were a few visits when I was younger. 
Um, and uh, so that that would have been nice to, to get to know them more. Yeah, um, but it's interesting that. with my mom. It, I mean, she, obviously she's fluent in English. She knows three languages. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't really language that was the problem with communicating. It was that we came from these different worlds and uh, and that we had these sort of different expectations about, you know, the way things should be. And, and it's not just from country. I mean, there's generation. There's, Absolutely. Um, you know, when you take a university education in the liberal arts, you have this different way that you talk about stuff and you're never really the same again. And it can be, there can be a gap even between, you know, Native-born Americans mm-hmm. where one has had that kind of education and has been trained to... I feel like that, that sometimes. Yeah. The other one just has a different way. Absolutely. And, That's real. Yeah, I think it's definitely yeah. a... You have those differences. I think, too, it's interesting, though, because, yeah, you mentioned, obviously, that it's not just a linguistic thing. There's a lot of cultural differences. But, I mean, your mom, and your mom, yeah, obviously, I know your mom, and, yeah, she speaks three languages fluently, which is, is amazing. But do you think that she ever feels like she's 100%, and I don't even know what this feels like, but do you feel like she feels like she's American now? Like, does she feel, like, fully integrated in American society, do you think? Um, probably not. I mean, um, I think to some extent, you know, you always have this identity of being an immigrant. Mm -hmm. If you have an accent, which she does, then that kind of marks you as being different. Absolutely. And, um, I think there is a real prejudice against um, English second language speakers that you encounter sometimes where because you don't express yourself quite as eloquently because of the language, people think you're not thinking as eloquently. Yeah, yeah. I see I mean? that. Like, like people Absolutely. Like sort of think that you're more, you know, because you're using simple sentences that you're having simple thoughts, which just isn't true. Yeah, I you know, I feel like that too in in Spanish because it's like I speak Spanish, but it's obvious that I don't aside from the accent, I don't always use the same words that my, you know, native Spanish friends use. And so it's like I hear them talk and then I say something in response and it's like, "Oh, everybody must think I'm a complete idiot." You know, because you can't you just don't have that same structure uh, to explain yourself the way that that, you know, natives do. So I, I, I definitely, I get yeah. that. And, and with my mom, I mean, she's also just an extremely quirky person. <laughs> yes, and yes. Amazing. So, like, she has this very, like, some people might respond to that kind of predicament by being more quiet or being super careful about what they say. And my mom just kind of barrels right through. And, you know, she makes, she often makes, like, a joke with languages. Like, she'll sort of use the wrong word on purpose. <laughs> but sounds similar. And I love it. Her own, she has, like, a very unique There's a lot. There's a lot there for sure. 
So, I mean, May, do you, obviously you were born in the States and you grew up in the States. So how do you feel? I mean, do you feel American? Interesting. Like, uh, yeah. Because I thought when I thought white, I thought, you know, like all your family has lived in America forever and you all speak English and you all, um, and, and yet nobody really talked about what white was and what wasn't, but it was always implied. So I was like really not sure if I was white or not. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting perspective so yeah I, I i didn't think of it like that i one one other question i have for you too is obviously like you mentioned you have two two kids and two super adorable kids so in being that we're in an interesting time right now where you know we are talking about race and racism and police brutality and and inequality how do you talk to your kids about what's going on? I mean, what do you think is the best way or kind of the methods that you find successful when it comes to talking about race with your your young children? Sure. 
gotta be specific. It's probably the biggest <laughs> thing. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I was raised also in the Baha'i faith, mm -hmm. and um, one of the big central teachings of the Baha'i faith is that the human race is one, that we're all one family, and that we have to rid ourselves of all prejudices, be it racial, national, uh, one of their quotes is, from our holy writings says the earth is but one country and mankind is citizens and that's kind of the reality we're trying to create in our communities so um i think i that was kind of like an inoculation for me growing up from a lot of prejudice that it was subtle but it was definitely there just growing up in a very white um you know sort of middle class somewhat wealthy community mm -hmm. um like, you know, but I, I was kind of the diversity in the room for most of the time I was growing up, and that's really not, <laughs> you know. I believe it, man. That says a lot about how homogenous. That's Maine. was. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, when I look back at the education I got and raised, I feel like it really could have been more straightforward, and that would have made um, it easier for me now. Um, like, we talked about race unity but we didn't talk as much about race prejudice growing mm. up. And I remember having conversations with my high school peers where I was almost like I had to prove the existence of racism to them. And I was a little bit unsure myself, like, how to prove it because I didn't see it anywhere. But I was like, well, the Baha'i faith wouldn't make it a big deal if it wasn't if it didn't so make, important. Right, if it wasn't a big thing. You know, I believe the experience of other people who say it's important, but I don't have any experience on myself or I haven't been given a very vivid concrete explanation of what it looks like so I'm kind of you know sure air about what races you know that racism is important and um you know it was kind of a more conceptual thing and it took a lot of reading on my own to really be able to understand what it actually is and and that's that's kind of how I realized I was white because if I have to read a book to understand <laughs> I love it. I I mean, I think you, yes. I, <laughs> I think that's a big, I don't know. I, I can't add anything else to that because I think you summed it up perfectly. But um, yeah, well, th thank you, Mayla. I really appreciate you sharing your experiences and your thoughts and opinions because, you know, obviously, as I, I've said, part of wanting to have a podcast is really about having these discussions and having different conversations about topics that are, you know, can be a little bit intense. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and discussing everything with me. Thank you, Layla. I really appreciate your podcast so much. Oh, that's really sweet. Well, we will definitely be in touch. And thanks again for, for coming on. Okay, it is that time. It is time for Ask a Black Friend. Okay, so today's question is, it has been three months since the death of George Floyd. Do you think anything has gotten better? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of an uh, interesting thing because I think that there is always more, uh, there's room for improvement, right? There's always um, opportunities for things to get better. There's always opportunities for change. I mean, in fact, just the other day, Ooh, you know, I was reading about uh, the death in San Antonio of a young man, Damien 
uh, Damien Daniels, who was killed. He was having a mental mental uh, breakdown outside of his home, and his family, all of his all of his family, they were actually out of town, so they called the Red Cross to to go over there and help him. Instead of the Red Cross going, they actually ended up calling the police. And uh, the police went over and they ended up shooting him. So, I mean, I think obviously we're still having issues with, like that. We're still having the issue in Wisconsin with, with Jacob Blake. And sort of adding fuel to the fire is, of course, the whole the whole story with the 17-year-old white kid who, who shot three people. And, you know, we're obviously still seeing issues and we're still seeing problems and in today's world and we're seeing equality continue and, and police brutality and all of that but I do think that there has been a lot of of dialogue there has been a lot of action there has been a lot of people taking notice of the situation which I think is good I mean it's never too late to get involved as I as I always say I think that sometimes, you know, myself included, I'm sort of like, you know, when people say to me, well, my gosh, I didn't know this was happening. I had no idea this stuff was happening. And, you know, and I, on one hand, I'm like, really? You don't know? Because I've been aware of this stuff for decades. But on the other hand, again, I don't think it's ever too late for, for people to get involved. And I think that it's good that people are learning and people are interested in learning. So I see this as positive. So I've seen a lot of positive stuff come out of of this with Black Lives Matter and and just everything moving forward after after George Floyd. So I think the big thing is just uh, hopefully continuing the movement and hopefully continuing the 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 success that we have seen so far. So that's a big thing. Okay, so I wanted to end this episode with a quote uh, from May, which again, thank you to May for uh, providing your your thoughts and your viewpoints and thanks for providing me with this quote it's a Baha'i quote from Abdul Baha and it goes as follows diversity in hues forms and shape enrich and adorn the garden and heighten the effect thereof in like manner when different shades of thoughts temperance and character are brought together under power and influence if one central agency the beauty and glory of human perfection will be revealed and made manifest. So I like that quote because I think, again, it's kind of stressing the importance of of diversity and the importance of the fact that, especially in a country like America, a lot of us are really different. We bring a lot of different things to the table, whether it's language, heritage, culture, etc. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful things. So that's all for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next week.